Literature makes you feel and it can get you thinking too. But how do you move from signs on the page to thoughts and feelings? And why does fiction sometimes feel more real than the world around us? My name is Stijn Vervaat and together with my colleagues from the Literature, Cognition and Emotions Project, LCE for short, we will discuss these and other questions in the coming weeks. Today's guest is Olivia Fiaio, an affiliated researcher to LCE and a researcher at the Huygens Institute of the Royal Dutch Academy of Arts and Sciences in Amsterdam, who also teaches comparative literature at Utrecht University. Olivia is working in the field of empirical literary studies and our topic today is transformative reading. Welcome, Olivia. Thank you for inviting me to be here. My pleasure. I'd like to start mentioning that you work in, as I said, uh, in the field of empirical literary studies and on transformative reading more specifically. Could you please briefly say something about how we should understand this notion? Would you call it a theory, a process or a concept? Where does it come from and what does it imply? Would it imply that by just by reading literary text we can change ourselves for better or for worse? Yes, uh, transformative reading at the moment is a concept. So it is a phenomenological concept or construct or phenomenon. So to be precise, transformative reading is one mode of experiencing literary texts. Mm -hmm. So it's one form of experiencing texts. So, for example, when we read, we might experience texts as being... Um, entertaining or mm -hmm. being absorbing or grotesque, mm -hmm. suspenseful, among many other forms of experiences. And transformative experience is one of them. So it is a form of experience in which, in which readers have a sense that through reading a work of fiction, they, have, uh, they see themselves and feel the world differently. Mm -hmm. And in this process, they might change perceptions about themselves and about others, uh, either fictional or real others. So perceptions of people they know mm -hmm. yeah, out there. So, um, so to put it in more popular terms, readers feel that the particular fictional book or story that they are reading has changed their lives. Mm -hmm. That's what we call transformative reading. And so, so far, research has focused on gaining access to the phenomenon mm -hmm. eh, or to the concept mm -hmm. uh, to, to, in describing it. So we do research to describe what is transformative reading, yep. what is the experience like. Mm -hmm. But also, um, so we understand what components are involved in the process mm -hmm. uh, and how the components interact. Mm -hmm. And for that, we carry out experimental studies. Yeah. So, so transformative reading it builds from a theory. It builds from a, the a dehabituation theory of literature, uh, which uh, was proposed by My David Mayo in 2006 mm -hmm. in his book, Literary Reading. Yeah. So the dehabituation theory is a theory of literariness. So the proposal is that literariness uh, is seen as the product of a distinctive mode of reading that is identifiable through three key components. Um, foregrounded 
textual or narrative features, mm-hmm. readers defamiliarizing responses to them, and the consequent modification of personal meanings. Mm-hmm. So, um, the main two components would be, to put it very simply, the text and the reader, right? So, transformative reading and the approaches that you use can shed potentially new light on the interactions between the reader and the text. And one tradition within which transformative reading could then be situated is probably that of reader response theory. Yeah, So the study of um, the interaction between reader and text, uh, the group of scholars interested in how readers respond to a literary text and how in responding to a literary text they actually generate meaning. So how do you build upon these and, and related older approaches and how does transformative reading then differ from them? Yes. Thank you for the question. Yes, it is. Uh, transformative reading has certainly shed light on the interaction between text and reader. Um, so it is about the relationship or the, the transactional experience mm-hmm. that occurs um, when readers engage with texts. So it has, from the one hand, been clarifying the components involved in the in this process. Mm-hmm. So it has provided information on the kinds of textual, um, foregrounded textual or narrative components, but also readers' defamiliarizing responses, and also uh, on the process of uh, modification of personal meanings and eh, how it occurs. But the question of a transformative um, reading and the power of literature and arts in general to change mm-hmm. the reader is not new. Um, so as you uh, has mentioned correctly, it has been present since human beings realized that they could influence others through discourse. Mm-hmm. And in the course of the development of uh, literary theories, uh, Uh, opinions are divided as regards to whether literature's transformative powers eh, are desirable or not. Mm-hmm. So whether yeah. it changes the reader for the better or the worse. Yeah, is it Plato you're referring <laughs> now to? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. And uh, and the second is the aspects of life that literature changes. Mm-hmm. So in poetics, for example, Aristotle was yeah. already mentioning the effects of drama in uh, how the audience um, understands or reacts eh, to to tragedy and comedy. Mm -hmm. And the question of catharsis, probably. Exactly, Mm -hmm. which is a mode of, which is a form of transformative reading. Yeah, I see. Mm -hmm. So what the research has shown so far is that we have been confirming Aristotle's theory. Mm -hmm. So the notion of catharsis, catharsis is one form of uh, being changed by texts. Yeah. But it is not the only one. Mm-hmm. So uh, the contribution of research in this area is that uh, we have been articulating other forms of uh, transformation through reading fiction. And as you mentioned, Plato, yes, uh, Plato uh, wanted to ban poets from his republic. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> For their power to change yeah. Others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the notion has uh, been discussed with among uh, 
after uh, Romanticism, then after mm -hmm. Romanticism um, within formalist approaches to mm -hmm. literature. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and also, uh, so when you mentioned uh, reader response theories, yes, it builds from uh, uh, reader response theories. However, and I, I use it in the plural because there's not, not like a literary uh, theory of reader response, mm -hmm. but there are many theories. Yeah. But they are primarily based on how highly specialized readers read, mm -hmm. yeah? or they are yeah. theoretical concepts, or they are constructs. Yeah? So, and, and reader response theories have um, uh, provided di different models uh, of reading. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we have um, Fish, Stanley yeah. Fish, mm -hmm. and his informed reader mm -hmm. uh, from the 70s. Uh, Easer's Implied Reader. Mm -hmm. uh, in, much uh, earlier, in '59, we have Read Affairs uh, and the model of the super reader, mm -hmm. which is a statistical yep. construct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So these approaches or these models have brought the reader to the limelight. Okay? But, as I said, their models are models of how highly specialized readers read. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you want to bring in the ordinary reader, or how should I understand uh, exactly. this broadening <laughs> of, of the reader? Also? I would like to bring the common reader, mm -hmm. uh, to use mm -hmm. Virginia Woolf's. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, let's say term here. Mm -hmm. But by common reader, I mean the actual reader today, so the flesh and blood reader, yeah. and um, all types of readers. Mm -hmm. So highly specialized readers, as well as... Uh, readers, the common reader who are not students of literature. Who read for entertainment, maybe. Exactly, or, mm -hmm. for their own pleasure. Mm -hmm. So And who read perhaps all kinds of uh, literature as well, not just highbrow literature, but also popular. Exactly. Works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a notion that you've mentioned several times now is the dehabituation or foregrounding, right? So the idea, to put it simply again, that liter literary texts use specific devices which not only capture the attention of readers and direct his at attention, but also can have far-reaching effects on the reader. And this prehistory of foregrounding, we've mentioned Plato, Aristoteles, and of literary uh, literariness more generally, this prehistory goes back as far as Aristotle, but key players in the debate were also the Russian formalists and the Prague linguistic circle. So could you tell us a bit more about this? Yes, that's a great summary. <laughs> yeah, so the term uh, mm -hmm. for grounding refers usually uh, to this form of textual patterning, mm -hmm. which is motivated specifically for literary aesthetic purposes. So, and that's a definition provided by a stylistician, yeah, Paul Simpson, in 2014. Mm -hmm. So, according to him, foregrounding typically involves a stylistic distortion mm -hmm. uh, of some sort. So, either through an aspect of the text, which deviates uh, from a linguistic norm, mm -hmm. or alternatively, where an aspect of the text is brought to the fore through repetition or parallelism. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and 
research on how these features affect readers is one of the most fruitful topics in this interdisciplinary field of literary scholarship. Mm-hmm. And of all concepts in literary theory, foregrounding is the most frequently tested, mm-hmm. so often with compelling empirical evidence. And one approach uh, to foregrounding that extends these original conceptions of the function of foregrounding yeah, focuses on how reading experiences involve the self. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and one approach that is particularly suitable to investigate these processes is qualitative research in depth interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now we come to your method. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, because you work a lot with uh, empirical methods, I announced you as a scholar in the field of empirical literary studies, right? So, could you explain a bit to us how this works, how this looks like? How do you test your hypothesis? What kind of experiments do you do with your readers? Or, should I say, with your texts? Because if I understood it correctly, you also manipulate literary texts that you then ask readers to respond to. So, can you give an idea of... of How this works? Yes, certainly. So, in empirical literary studies, yeah, we approach questions that emerge from literary studies, yeah, and we use methods from behavioral sciences, among others, to study them. So, uh, in transformative reading research, let's say, we carry out phenomenological studies, mm-hmm. which means so it began, uh, or the way that I began this project was to interview readers or the co- common readers. Yeah. So either I would ask them to come to the lab and mm-hmm. read the short stories selected by myself yeah. aloud or um, bring books that have changed their lives, fictional mm-hmm. books, and bring it to me so I would interview them about these books mm-hmm. and also ask them to select passages and read them aloud to me and talk about their experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So these studies are about finding more about um, what the experience is like. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it like to experience transformation mm-hmm. through reading texts? Yeah. So this would be a kind of a qualitative uh, yes. interview and an in-depth conversation with you. Uh, yes. But I, I have developed a method uh, which is... I, Actually, it is a uh, methodological procedure, yeah, which is a hybrid between mm-hmm. qualitative and yeah. quantitative mm-hmm. procedures, which is called LexNAP. Okay. So it analyzes. LexNAP is a short name for lexical basis for numerically aided phenomenology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In simple terms, we analyze uh, what readers talk about, mm-hmm. but also how they express what. Um, what they are talking about. So, for example, if a reader um, uh, feels sympathy for a character, Mm -hmm. so then we identify, well, that's a form of, uh, this is sympathy. Mm -hmm. But how is this sympathy, how is sympathy expressed? So, some readers say, well, it is very sad that this character goes Mm -hmm. through this situation. Mm -hmm. Or, they might say, I feel very sad when I read the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So 
is the reader the agent of the experience or not? So this yeah. is the type of analysis that we do. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of fine-grained analysis mm-hmm. um, of uh, the content of what readers say, but also the how, how they talk yeah. about their mm-hmm. experiences. Um, so these are phenomenological studies uh, to gain access and describe the experience. Mm-hmm. But we also carry out experimental studies, which means once we learn about what the experience is like, what the components are Mm -hmm. involved, then we start testing them uh, in experiments. So, for example, uh, today we have a a scale or a Mm -hmm. questionnaire of transformative reasoning, and then we are able to test whether transformative experiences occur uh, in relation to any kind of text. So we change the variable text according Mm -hmm. to genre, for example. So we offer them uh, modernist texts, realist texts, etc. And we check whether uh, their responses refer according to the type of text offered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is one uh, form of experiments that we have been carrying out. But uh, and so far we have developed um, an exploratory uh, explanatory model mm-hmm. of transformative reading. So we were able to identify what these components are and what predicts uh, transformations in sense of self and others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and what is it then? <laughs> or how should we relate it back to the, the issue of um, dehabituation or foregrounding or not necessarily? I mean, is this now related to, how should I say, to uh, the formal level of the text or kinds of triggers in the text that, um, or kinds of uh, phrasing or wording in the text that trigger sympathy with the character or is it the plot or is it the combination or bo- of both or how, how do you see this yeah so yeah that's a, an important question we have also been uh, trying to shed light on these questions so for example uh, the idea is that there are textual features uh, mm-hmm. that elicit empathy okay. for example yeah. so what are so we have some um, theories of how narrative empathy occurs mm-hmm. uh, for example by Susanne King so these are narrative features so the question of uh, what in the text uh, evokes um, empathy or sympathy mm-hmm. or resonance I still pressing questions so we try to find out we are trying to map what is in the test mm-hmm. that, that elicits this mode of responses. Yeah. And then, uh, and what the content uh, looks like. Mm-hmm. So how does empathy, how is empathy expressed in reader's discourse? Yeah. Um, and uh, on the other hand, we also look into the effects. So once they experience empathy, for example, what is the after effect? Okay, so for for example, uh, empathy. Yeah? So we assume that there are certain features, textual features that elicit uh, empathy on the reader. Yeah. Yeah? So we have several hypotheses or several studies now uh, being conducted to describe 
narrative empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So one of the reference works in this area is Susan King's uh, work. But um, so we try to illuminate questions of this kind. Yes. And then so we assume that there are certain features, narrative features in the text that evoke empathy on the reader. Yeah? And we describe also how empathy is expressed. Yes? How can we capture empathy when they, ex- they talk about the experiences of reading? Mm-hmm. Yeah? So with empathy more generally, you, you refer to the way in which readers feel along with the character or have sympathy with the character or is it not only with characters? Yeah, so empathy Mm -hmm. means to feel with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when you feel with uh, the text, you feel with characters. Mm -hmm. So in empathy, there is usually like a merging of boundaries Mm -hmm. between self and other. Yeah. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Whereas in sympathy, when you feel for characters, there is a more distant, um, there is separation between self and others. Okay. Yeah? Or yeah. This, the boundaries of self and others are clearly distinguished. Yeah. So that's a very important distinction, actually. Yes. Yeah. So we know, for example, that transformative experiences, they do occur. Uh, one of the ways or the pathways yeah, to feel transformed occurs through a merging of boundaries between self and others. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when readers read a text and they cannot differentiate who is the pe- the speaker. Eh? Is it mm-hmm. the, the, the character or is it himself or is it the narrator? Yeah? So, these are mode of experiences in which they say, well, I am this character. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. So, if you want to understand my life when I was 19 years old, mm-hmm. read this book. Yeah, yeah? okay. Mm-hmm. So through this form of engagement, which you call it's a metaphorical engagement mm-hmm. with the text, transformation occurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So mm-hmm. going back to the question of uh, foregrounding, then we study what's in the text uh, that would elicit empathy, for example. Mm-hmm. So the form of experience, how does empathy look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah? And what are the after effects? So what are the effects of empathy? Yeah. On, the, on the part of the reader. On the part of the yeah. reader. So, for example, is empathy a precursor? Mm-hmm. Is it an antecedent of yeah. sympathy? Or does it happen after yeah. the experience mm-hmm. of sympathy? So mm-hmm. these are complex questions that we try to uh, elucidate via experimental studies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After all these years of studying how readers respond to literary texts, would you say that there is a difference between trained readers and likes? Yeah? Or do we train ourselves anyway just by the, by reading, just through the practice uh, practice of reading? At the beginning of our talk, you also mentioned that these earlier theorists of reader response studies, they had a kind of abstract and idealized reader in their mind. So what what... To, in your view, is the difference between trained readers, readers who have like studied comparative literature, um, who work as professional literary critics, or just high school readers, or anyone who just likes to enjoy a literary text? From a quantitative perspective, uh, it seems that these uh, two types of readers, uh, specialized versus mm-hmm. non-specialized yeah. readers, uh, their responses don't seem to differ. Mm-hmm. Uh, However, the quality of responses eh, from a qualitative perspective 
then we can see some differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So, for example, uh, students of literature or highly specialized readers, yeah, they seem to provide more complex responses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, for example, they seem to resort from, uh, from more complex cognitive and emotional uh, apparatuses mm-hmm. yeah, when responding to texts. And this is um, so we can also understand this by means of uh, one of the effects or the roles of reading fiction yeah? mm-hmm. that uh, we we have some preliminary finding that actually reading fiction changes the physiology of our brain. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So and and that's important because it looks like fiction has a pl- uh, has a role in our brains and yeah, mm-hmm. that we start making new and fresh synapses yeah? and um, so this might explain uh, uh, these differences in uh, in the quality of responses yeah? and I can imagine this could be the same for someone who studies mathematics a lot and yeah? mm-hmm. they develop other forms of um, Thinking, thinking, yes, yeah. but mm-hmm. still, these findings are still uh, preliminary. So, yeah. lots of research, and that's how science progresses, yeah? uh, step by step. Yeah. So we are mm-hmm. still gathering more information about how these processes occur. Yeah. So the question is not, or the issue is not just, or the assumption is not just that people who have a, a broader or more fine-grained theoretical apparatus to discuss literature, that they um, respond in more complex way to your questions, but also that people who just read a, a lot, um, they perhaps have developed some their brain in a different way, or am I now oversimplifying it completely? No, that's great, because uh, actually, so to put it in, in simple terms, so uh, both specialized readers and the common reader all of them sympathize with characters mm-hmm. they get absorbed yeah. by yeah. reading stories mm-hmm. yeah and they might reject or have negative feeling towards mm-hmm. characters mm-hmm. Yeah? but while they express their experiences yeah? then uh, they provide lengthier analysis or uh, lengthier descriptions of their experiences okay. yeah? Yeah. so then their narrative are more complex. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that mm-hmm. is one of the ways in which, by means of which, again, information about uh, our cognitive, how we process text, cognitively mm-hmm. speaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not about how we process text, theoretically speaking, but cognitively and emotionally. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this brings us, I think, to the broader societal uh, relevance or the impact, if you want to use a fancy word, the impact of your research on transformative reading. So I think there is an important component to your research that shows the potential and perspectives of transformative reading, namely its applicability in education. And not accidentally, you have also been running transformative reading projects in education in the Netherlands and in Portugal. So do you think we then need new ways of teaching literature, perhaps. Yes. So since uh, literature has been institutionalized uh, in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. uh, what we have been doing with the teaching of literature has been focusing on the question, 
what is this text about? Yeah. So we have been primarily focusing on how to interpret texts, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But as Stanley Fish also put it, interpretation, I would disagree with him. I'd say, mm -hmm. well, interpretation is not the only game in town. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. So there's also an experiential dimension which is extremely relevant. It is mm -hmm. part of aesthetic experiences. And that's what um, uh, these transformative reading workshops, they, uh, they focus on, yeah? on the exper experiential aspects. So in other words, in experiencing or living through texts. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, and I don't think this should be an either-or situation, mm -hmm. but the point is that in addition to what we have already been doing successfully yeah, with literary mm. education, uh, we also include or give the space for the experiential dimension. Mm -hmm. yes? So both to um, that classrooms, for example, they also become the space uh, for the experiential dimensions so for reader, for uh, students to come and experience class uh, texts mm -hmm. in the classroom yeah. yeah but also to theorize so from a metacognitive perspective how can we even theorize about experiencing texts mm -hmm. discuss about the relationship between texts and readers um, yeah so instead of just teaching pupils or students how to interpret literary text or how to read and and come up with, with meaning, how to make a formal analysis of the text. You want to shift the perspective to maybe teaching pupils how to uh, like to read or how to experience reading because p students uh, or pupils read less and less. At least that's what we hear. Yes. So the idea is to just create the space for them to bring their own experiences, mm -hmm. eh? their personal yeah. experiences, their personal emotional uh, reactions. So to put that on the table too, mm -hmm. so that we can discuss what is the role of those emotional reactions, even in the interpretation of texts. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So teaching literature, so uh, as I said, it's not an either or situation, yeah. but mm -hmm. in addition to the courses we already offer, it's mm -hmm. about also giving the space to uh, this experiential dimension, uh, to invite them to live through texts, mm -hmm. uh, to the, to offer them different ways yeah. to live through texts um, that might be similar or different to how they are used to experiencing texts uh, mm -hmm. in their lives out there. And also to, from a metacognitive perspective, to reflect on or to theorize on uh, these experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's um, not doing away with older ways of teaching literature, but more as a complement. Yeah. So yes. maybe also invite students to think what literature can do for them. Exactly. Yeah? Yes. Mm. And when we're discussing what the benefits of reading literature would be, you're also collaborating with the team from the medical. Uh, faculty at the University of Oslo, which would be another interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary collaboration that points to the relevance of your research, the apl applicability of transformative reading beyond literary studies. So would you like to tell us something about that as well, or is this still a work in progress and as such top secret? <laughs> 
Now I'm very pleased to talk about that <laughs> project among uh, several, but it was. Uh, um, I am very thankful for this uh, invitation mm-hmm. eh, to join the team in the Faculty of Medicine here in Oslo. Uh, and the idea of the project is to work with uh, moral learning. Yeah. Moral learning. Yes. Yeah. So bring in ethical questions. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's developed together with the Center of Medical Humanities Mm -hmm. uh, here at the University of Oslo. And their idea was to uh, create uh, didactical opportunities eh, Mm -hmm. for healthcare practitioners. Mm -hmm. eh, And more specifically on how to deal with moral residue. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, healthcare practitioners they are confronted on their everyday basis with moral questions. And at times, there are no right or wrong answers. Mm -hmm. Yes, But they do have to make a choice. And in situations of of this kind, might cause quite some stress Mm -hmm. for them. So the, the idea, so then the invitation was to adapt the transformative reading program for medical ethics education, mm-hmm. yes, and to with the goal uh, not to cure them yeah. because this is part <laughs> of their uh, everyday right? life, their yeah. profession, mm-hmm. yes, but to help them live with and through more residue. And the ambiguities of making these choices within a very limited time frame or under pressure or yes mm-hmm. so yeah. uh, this is, would be a contribution eh, for transformative reading but also for medical ethics teaching yeah. mm-hmm. so this interdisciplinary efforts mm-hmm. they can really enrich eh, scholarship but also teaching and our experiences of what literature can do for the reader mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how should we then envisage uh, such a workshop? You select a couple of texts or you ask the medical students to come with text? Or Yes. So uh, transformative reading program is evidence-based. Yeah. So mm-hmm. which means that um, there is a way for selecting texts. Yeah? So uh, there is a method on how to select texts. Mm-hmm. Yeah? There is also, so lesson plans, they are based on the components of transformative reading. So so we carry out different workshops uh, to foster those modes, this, those varied modes of experience that are part mm-hmm. of transformative reading. And, uh, but, and then we study the, the outcome. So is it, does it really happen? Is it really true that after experiencing transformative workshops, mm-hmm. we, we can change or we can cause an impact on empathy, for example? Mm-hmm. And we have been demonstrated that yes, yes. So giving lectures or workshops, they do, we have, we confirm yeah, and we find out more about the benefits of transformative reading. So some uh, benefits that we know is that uh, it impacts creativity. Yeah? It also raises uh, language awareness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It uh, produces. Um, it it uh, they they usually score uh, participants in these workshops. They score higher on uh, eudaimonic reading, 
which is meaningful reading. Okay. Uh, so reading not for hedonic purposes, mm-hmm. yeah. but for meaningfulness. Yeah, so yeah. not for enjoyment, but to for philosophical reasons or to, yes or for mm-hmm. gaining uh, deeper insight into themselves yeah, yeah. and uh, it also impacts or increases motivation to read and mm-hmm. motivation to study literature okay. yes mm-hmm. and we have uh, so the the experiments that we carried out actually they were intervention studies mm-hmm. in uh, educational context we one of the benefits is to impact moral concepts mm-hmm. yeah so it uh, transformative reading workshops they do um, have an impact on uh, moral self-concepts mm-hmm. so now we just bring this to the um, foreground mm-hmm. <laughs> or we this is the aim at, so we make it we turn the question around so we make it a goal yeah one of the goals of this uh, transformative reading mm-hmm in the medical ethics context is to impact moral self-concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so rather than just using, to put it like this, the medical students as a neutral um, participants in an experiment, you want to uh, acquire them a higher awareness of moral concepts and the ambiguity of moral concepts or to increase their reflection about those concepts. Is yes. that right? Yeah. Yes. So uh, so the workshops, the idea of the workshops is to bring the experience or to raise their awareness of mm-hmm. what moral residue is. Yeah. How does it feel for them? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Does yeah. it feel similarly or differently among peers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in this process, and but they are not uh, talking about th- themselves explicitly, but they are talking about stories. Yeah. yeah? So they discuss characters and yeah. uh, fictional situations. But uh, when we read stories, yeah, that's that's a theory of transformative yeah. reads. Mm-hmm. When we th- when we read stories, we are actually reading ourselves. Mm-hmm. Through stories, yeah. yeah, but that's a process that they are. We don't lecture them about it, mm-hmm. but we invite them to live through texts, mm-hmm. and by this process, they find out about, how they yeah. live with and through moral residue. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, when they and we also provide the space for them to talk about those experiences, yeah. mm-hmm. and. Uh, we know from research also that talking about experiences of reading or experiences that are difficult for you is just uh, having this environment in which you are able to talk through mm-hmm. or about and about experiences already helps them yeah. cope with situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you give me a hint what kind of texts do you use? What kind of, uh, yeah, should this text deal with the medical situation or not at all not necessarily (laughs) but these are all all of these assumptions are put to test so usually we we choose texts thematically Mm -hmm. so for example so first we need to understand what is moral residue so for us in according to our uh, definition moral residue is not a monolithic concept, mm-hmm. yeah, but it involves impermissible emotions. Yeah? Mm-hmm. It involves moral dilemmas yeah. and normative ignorance. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that we you we use texts 
from literature mm-hmm. uh, that uh, um, offer textual representations of impermissible emotions mm-hmm. uh, or moral dilemmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, literature is all about is moral it, dilemmas. Um, so we have a... Raskolnikov so, and crime and punishment, or is it a bit too far-fetched? Yes, crime and punishment, I mean, it's the hallmark of, <laughs> <laughs> one of the hallmarks of literature, mm-hmm. and it is a school for moral learning mm-hmm. in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah? But for many readers, crime and punishment is quite a difficult and complex text mm-hmm. yeah, to read. But... Um, what we so yes yeah, so reading crime and punishment is a great candidate to mm-hmm. be included included in the list but it is about how and crime and punishment is a novel that really makes us question who we are yeah. as mm-hmm. moral beings yeah? how do we even make moral choices mm-hmm. how can we love a criminal Huh? Mm-hmm. So work with those impermissible yeah. emotions. Huh? And would we grab the X as well? Well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm, that's uh, perhaps a bit over the top. But yeah, so we start with questions about identifying ourselves. How can we have sympathy or empathy with a character as Raskolnikov and, yes. what his, and his thoughts? Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, to conclude, I would like to ask you for a, a reading recommendation for the listeners. Would it be Dostoevsky or something <laughs> completely different? I certainly recommend Dostoevsky. <laughs> But uh, uh, one of the things that we have been finding out is that if you want to change your life mm-hmm. or concepts of self and others, you must read literary narrative fiction. Yeah, so it has mm-hmm. to be literary yeah. and it has to be fiction. Yeah. Yeah? And we know uh, that uh, literary narrative fiction reading has an important role in our lives. So it helps us cope with situations in our lives. It helps us uh, find possible scenarios to challenges we currently face yeah? or to revisit past memories and then um, re Give you give a different meaning to past memories, for example. Yeah? So I would recommend uh, making thematic choices. Mm-hmm. So choose a theme that is relevant for your life now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So something that is a current challenge or current um, that you're facing, for example. So think about a theme, then visit a bookstore mm-hmm. and look for books that um, discuss um, that given theme. Mm-hmm. And that can be any kind of... And that's how you also find new uh, fiction yeah. Yeah, that you might not have known before. Yes. So this is one uh, tip that I would yeah. give. But it should be fiction. No essays, no newspapers, no scientific articles. It should be fiction. And why fiction? Yes. So we have um, scientific evidence mm-hmm. yeah, that reading fiction, uh, reading literary narrative fiction, for example, uh, makes us more empathic beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's... Uh, so in experiments in which contrast reading fiction versus non-fiction, mm-hmm. so newspapers, yeah. uh, 
scientific journals. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't seem, it doesn't impact uh, theory of mind yeah, or our emotion and cognitive capacities mm-hmm. at the same level that yeah. reading literary narrative fiction does. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a publication um, in science in 2013 by Kidan Castano. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the, let's say, it was quite an important um, publication uh, for the field because they could demonstrate that reading literary narrative fiction impacts theory of mind yeah? as compared to non- non-fiction. non-fiction mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, so then the first tip would be to select texts according to themes. Mm-hmm. Yeah? But the other tip uh, is to also draw from the transformative books list that I have collected over the years. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that those are the only books that could change your life. Yeah. But this is a li- I have a list of uh, with 150 titles mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. of literary narrative fiction that have changed the lives of the readers that yeah. I have interviewed. Yeah. And among them we have uh, for example Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, mm-hmm. we have Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, mm-hmm. we have Alison Bechdel Fun, uh, Alice Bechdel's Fun Home, mm-hmm. uh, Family Tragic Comedy, uh, among many others. Yeah. Annie Carson's Autobiography of Red. Mm-hmm. But now, Olivia, really to close our uh, conversation, I cannot resist asking you, which book has changed your life? Oh, <laughs> several. Several books have changed my life. And I actually mm-hmm. started this project because I was truly interested uh-huh. about this phenomenon. So one of them has been Voltaire's Candide, mm-hmm. which is actually a book that I revisit um, in my mind many mm-hmm. times through mm-hmm. several situations in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is to name one. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>